and we're back with another episode of Gladio for Europe. I'm Russian Sam, and I'm joined today by Halal Sam. Hello. And today uh, we have uh, a guest with us. He's most well known as Hez Bolsonaro on Twitter, but his real name is Liam, and uh, he's a prolific poster and a political commentator, and he's here today to talk to us about the 1998 film West Beirut and the Lebanese Civil War more generally. And Beirut more generally, too. Yeah, yeah. Hey, guys, how's it going? It's going pretty well, going pretty well. I'm on vacation right now, almost done with it. Just rewatched the movie again. It's been a, like a year or so since I've watched this, like the first time. So I just rewatched it again, and it's definitely it's definitely an interesting and sad, but also very beautiful movie. It's the same for me. Um, I think I, I watched it when I was in Lebanon, um, and... Uh, just rewatched it again yesterday. And yeah, it's definitely um quite a unique film, I think. Really interesting stylistically and uh, and thematically. So yeah, I'm interested to hear what you guys think about it. It's a great film. It's probably the most well-known movie about the Lebanese Civil War. So again, the movie is West Beirut, directed in, and released in 1998 by the director Ziad Dueri, who was born himself in Beirut in 1963. Uh, the movie is heavily autobiographical. Uh, the main character, Tore, in the movie, he's supposed to be a stand-in for uh, Ziad himself. It's he, he himself grew up in a very similar family, in a very similar situation. But yeah, Ziad left Lebanon in 1983, and he went to study in the U.S. Uh, he graduated the San Diego State University in 1986, got a degree in cinema. And he worked extensively in Hollywood, uh, most prolifically with Quentin Tarantino as a photographer and camera assistant. This movie was his debut, released in 1998, very successful, won several awards, has been uh, praised a lot, um, especially because of how realistic this movie was in depicting the, the realities of Lebanese life during the war in a very gritty way, very unpolished, without really idealizing the situation. Uh, Doherty himself said during the first years of the Civil War, despite the anxiety that I could sense in my parents, I was incapable of feeling it myself. I wasn't born with fear. I acquired it. And that's really the arc of the movie itself. Like throughout the movie, Tore is just sort of this class clown who doesn't really take anything seriously. And only towards the end does it dawn on him. Yeah, so um, I think it's interesting. The movie really grounds you in like actual events. I'm, I'm not a, you know, huge movie buff, but I've seen enough war movies that are are very vague on like uh, the actual history and stuff. They tend to try to avoid actually grappling with real things. But um, this like gets into specific events. You know, the opening scene: um, Tarek and Omar are uh, students at a at a French school uh, in uh, in East Beirut, and um, I mean it's it's very dramatized. I'm sure you know. Well, they, they witnessed the Ainur uh, Ramane bus massacre, uh, which kicks off the start of the Lebanese Civil War, obviously. You know, that wouldn't have happened. Probably you wouldn't have had kids looking out their school window seeing that. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's 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 very specific. Like, okay, here's what happened. Uh, gunmen massacred a bus of Palestinians. Yeah, and they have, like, a Kamal Jumblet's assassination. Yeah, yeah, that was another that was another thing. Going to the, uh, you know, a march or a rally or a funeral, I don't know, uh, uh, after Kamal Jumblet's assassinated. But on the other hand, like, uh, you know, he messes with the timeline, too, because that, that happens, like, two full years after the uh, Lebanese Civil War starts. Jumblet's assassination was 77, right? Yeah, yeah, it's in 77. But, but like, they don't really show the, the passage of time. Like, if you didn't know that, it wouldn't be clear that more than a few weeks had passed, really. 
Yeah, no, the only the only indica- you have indications in some things like you see people start to look a little more depressed and decay and some people change the way they dress um, and some things like that. But overall, the indications of time are deteriorating conditions. Yeah, just uh, these factors are why I hesitate to really call this a historical movie per se, because it, it doesn't really deal with the history itself. Like it has historical events like the bus massacre and and the assassination of Jumblat. But at the same time, it's more of a coming of age story in, in a war zone rather than a movie about the events of the war themselves. It's just a story of these kids grow, growing up into adulthood and maturing as as they grapple with the realities of the deteriorating situation around them. Right, for sure. But I, I think what, what stands out to me is that it also, um, you know, grounds itself in, in the political situation at the time. I mean, you can see in their neighborhood, you know, Amal movement posters and stuff and, uh, you know, references to specific political and militia leaders. So I, th- I think it, it really does uh, make an effort to to establish, like, the, the real political environment uh, around the, the events that are being depicted instead of just, you know, brushing it off with a vague, like, uh, oh, there's a war going on, there's two sides, blah, blah, blah. No, you see clear identifications of who these people are. Yeah. And you see their yeah. identities kind of hardened in some ways. But actually, let's start a bit more broadly and talk about the Civil War. I'll start with Lebanon. So Lebanon's created after World War One. Uh, it's a French mandate carved out of Ottoman territory. I mean, there, there had been, you know, entities called Lebanon, Mount Lebanon in that area for, for a long time. But, you know, this is what establishes the, the borders of the state that we know today. When Lebanon gains its independence from France, they establish a political system under the National Pact, which divides power between uh, the Muslims and Christians in the country. Lebanon is very religiously diverse, has a bunch of different sects. Um, none of them are, are like a dominant population. So the political leaders at the time and the international powers especially. This was uh, 43. So yeah, so you get this this system of power sharing. Uh, the prime minister has to always be a Sunni Muslim. The president has to always be a Maronite Christian, and the Speaker of Parliament has to always be a Shia Muslim. And there's a 6-5 ratio in Parliament. Yeah, and then crucially, there's an agreement made up that Lebanon's Christians are not to seek domination of Lebanon by, by foreign powers, particularly France, because Christian elite, or however you want to understand it, were very Western-looking. And on the other hand, Lebanon's Muslim leaders were supposed to not align Lebanon with the Arab world, not to join, not to join Syria in particular. Yeah, which was a very popular demand in uh, some Muslim circles. Right, and then later on, this becomes relevant when uh, Nasser establishes the UAR, uh, and there's people in Lebanon that want to join, want to join that as well. The first prime minister describes the country as a quote a country with an Arab profile that assimilates all that is beneficial and useful in Western civilization, which is a good way of describing how the Lebanese elite perceives itself in their country. It's an insane belief, but it's what they believe. Yeah, but yeah. So in the years that follow, there is you know a lot of tension over this. Lebanon becomes economically prosperous off of a lot of mostly banking is is a is a big becomes a big industry, but a very unequal country as well. So you get Beirut developing quite a lot, becoming a hub for uh, international finance and, and tourism, all the while a lot of the country is still very poor. In 1958, you have the Lebanon crisis, where basically U.S. troops uh, end up intervening to stop kind of rebellion that comes up from these leftist Arab nationalist faction that's emerged uh, against President Kamil Shamoun, who's a uh, right-wing Christian and is seen as very 
pro well he is very pro west pro france pro united states so this doesn't this doesn't escalate into a full-fledged civil war but there's a small conflict that is you know starting to show the tensions that have emerged. Lebanon becomes home later on to the Palestinian Liberation Organization after they're forced out of Jordan after the events of Black September. The PLO is very well trained, very highly armed, and they essentially set up shop in various parts around Lebanon, and that causes a lot of tensions. They're still launching attacks into Israel, Israel's responding, so a lot of Lebanese people are, are unhappy about this, particularly Christians who don't see any kind of kinship with uh, the Palestinian cause and many of whom would, would prefer to make peace with Israel. So, yeah, this eventually gets us to 1975, when a group of Palestinians taking a bus back to uh, their camp are attacked by a group of gunmen from the Kataib party, which is a, a right-wing Christian group. And this was sort of presented as retaliation for uh, some other events that had unfolded, altercations between Kataib militiamen and PLO militiamen. Yeah, they tried to kill Pierre Gemayel, who was the head of the Kataib earlier on that day. And this attack was basically viewed as retribution against this attempt. Yeah, yeah. And Gemayel is, is like sort of the main guy... Uh, uh, advocating against the Palestinians, basically. Pierre Jamal, to be specific, because there are um, there there is a whole family there that we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this, along with some other events around the same time, sets off the conflict. You know, you get more back and forth attacks, and within a few months, it's it's basically broken out into war. A bunch of different factions on both sides take hold. You get broadly speaking the right-wing Christian coalition, the Le Lebanese forces or the Lebanese front, composed of Kataib and some other parties. And on the other hand, you have the, the PLO allied with the Lebanese National Front, which is a group of leftist, Arab nationalist, um, mostly Muslim, but also including a lot of Christians. The Druze too, right? Druze, yes. Yes. When I say Muslim, I, I include Druze in that because Lebanon includes Druze in that, even though it's technically a separate thing. Yeah, they're including the, the seat allotments for Muslims in Parliament. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the National Front, is, the Lebanese National Front is basically concerned with reforming Lebanon. This, so they, they want uh, more equal power sharing uh, at the very least, if not, you know, an abolishment of this confessional system. They want, you know, more egalitarian economic system. So you have, yeah, socialists and communists as part of this. Um, and they're very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. Of course. Yeah, and just to go back a little bit, um, again, this goes back to the problem of the National Pact, which created this explicitly sectarian system within Lebanon, which itself was based on this 1932 census of the population, which the accuracy of which has itself been uh, disputed at times. But essentially, because of this census, uh, despite the fact that uh, that Christians were no longer a majority of the country, they held a disproportionate uh, sway in terms of political power as well as as economic power, and naturally this bred a lot of, of resentments. Yeah, the Christian, uh, the Maronite Christians uh, get the uh, presidency, which is a very powerful executive, and also the six to five. They are the six in the six to five in the parliament. Five uh, for Muslims, six to. Christians. And they haven't also, they have not done a census since. Yes, exactly. Like, it's so contentious that they have not done another census since 1932, so no one really knows what the population of Lebanon is or the actual composition, because if a census were done, that would mean uh, the resumption of civil war, essentially. Or that's the fear, at least. We have estimations about 
you know, the, the size of population based on, you know, voting and stuff. And it's figured that, you know, Christians are about one-third to 40% of, of the population, and Shias and Sunnis are each, you know, a, a, a bit similar to, to that, a bit less, and then Druze make up the rest, whatever that is. And also important to mention that uh, Palestinian refugees are not counted in this. Right. Pa- well, Palestinian and Syrian refugees who make up, by many estimates, uh, around 2 million people in a country of 7 million. Uh, and the, I mean, this is the, right now we're seeing the same stuff from Christian politicians in Lebanon who are worried about like a demographic threat of Syrian refugees who are overwhelmingly uh, Sunni Muslim. And this was the same worry that they had with the Palestinians back in uh, the 1970s, because it was I mean, it wasn't just the PLO, it was, it was just Palestinian people. And so uh, so you had a, a big worry that, you know, are these people going to become naturalized citizens? and, you know, upset the balance of power. So that's the concern on the part of the Christians. And the concern on the part of the Muslims is, yeah, the Christians have too much political power, too much economic power, you know. Why are we the underclass here? Which isn't to say that, you know, all Christians were wealthy and stuff. There were plenty of poor Christians. Mount Lebanon was a poor area. But, I mean, just broadly speaking, it was a very unequal country. And still is. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And especially the South, the mostly Shia South, was at this time especially poor. I mean, it may be poor today, but it was especially poor then. Yeah, and the most politically disorganized, like the Shiites didn't really have political representation until the Amal movement. Well, I mean, that's that's not really true. I mean, the uh, co- Communist Party was, was quite popular among Shiites uh, for a while. Yeah, I mean, that was the that was the main base of the Lebanese Communist Party. Yeah, but of course, they weren't being represented as Shiites. They were being represented as an economic underclass. Well, right. I mean, and this is the issue, you know, the, the war. Co- so almost founded in 1974, the war comes and people get pushed more into these sectarian lines. I mean, Shiites moved towards Amal because um, a lot of them grew upset with the PLO's conduct during the war because the PLO was, was very well established in the South, and they sort of, they acted as thugs, you know, bossing people around, you know, stealing, whatever. Uh, so people were unhappy about that, and that sort of helped lead to the decline of the, the Lebanese left among the, the Shiites, and gives rise to, uh, you know, more identitarian conservatism with Amal and uh, later Hezbollah, uh, but both of which are still calling for, you know, more wealth redistribution, more equal economics, um, with a uh, sectarian or religious overtone to it. Yeah, and of course, when we talk about sectarianism, it should be noted that we're not talking about a religious belief. We should not consider the Lebanese civil war to have been a religious war. It's just that uh, Lebanese society is set up on explicitly sectarian lines, which means that if you happen to be from a Muslim family, even if like your family doesn't even have a Quran in the house, you are a Muslim, despite the fact that you may know nothing about the religion, which is something that's uh, made very clear in, in the movie. Yeah, think Northern Ireland in terms of how identity functions here. This is what West Beirut deals with. Um, Tarek and Omar are talking about the Quran, and both of them are like, yeah, I've never, I've never read it. I don't know any of that stuff. They have the same relation to Islam that like a secular American Jew like me has to Judaism. Yeah. Pretty much, it's an identity, but it's uh, it's not the actual religion. Isn't something that plays a huge part in your life. Maybe you go to mosque sometimes. Maybe you celebrate Ramadan. Uh, but like other than that, I mean, which isn't to say that plenty of people weren't devoutly religious. I mean, keep in mind this this takes place in in Beirut. Tarek's family is a is a middle class family. Oh, very clearly, yeah. 
I mean, they, uh, they read the French and Arabic newspapers. Yeah, they're intellectuals. Uh, Tari's father knows El Cid by heart. It's implied that they're leftists of some kind. Like, this is not the average Lebanese person. No, this is a this is like a probably petty bourgeois family. But yeah, they become acutely aware of the fact that suddenly they are Muslims when the day after uh, the bus massacre is perpetrated. They're driving uh, Tare to school. I mean, even though it's it's very clear that school is going to be closed from that point on, and and they live in West Beirut, which was the more uh, Muslim slash mixed area, versus East Beirut, which is the more Christian area and at a certain point they hit a checkpoint and the guy looks at their ID sees that they're marked as Muslim and say that that you're not getting through they're only letting Christians in he just says the Christians are only letting Christians in and th- those are his words the Christians he, d- he doesn't say you know this or that party or this or that militia yeah um and uh, I mean this is this is referencing actual stuff they, they there were ID checkpoints um and there were there were massacres based on this I mean people people were uh were killed based on religion that was shown on their, their ID cards, um, especially especially in the, the early days of the war, uh, these Christian militias would, would stop people at checkpoints and, uh, you know, shoot people uh, for, for not being Christian. Um, and, like, this kind of stuff instigated, like, back and forth reprisals and all of that. Um, so you have a conflict, essentially, that has ideological roots, but is then acted on in a, a sectarian manner just like, you know, killing people for, for whatever their sect is. It's also important to point out that uh, material conditions are deteriorating quite a bit for much of the country, especially if you are not rich, if you cannot afford a one-way ticket to Paris. Oh, it's also the, um, the family, they drink wine with dinner. Most of their, a lot of their neighbors seem to drink and do other things that a devout Muslim are not supposed to do traditionally. Their reaction to the call of prayer is basically to be annoyed by it. Like, these are fairly secular people. And when May, the Christian girl, is introduced, they're... Um, Tarek is kind of like, why should I care that she's a Christian or has a cross necklace on her neck? And that only becomes more important, you know, they realize why it's important later. Well, and we're, I mean, we're not given any indication that, like, she even gives a shit of a religion either. Like, we, we're not seen, we're not shown, uh, like, her praying or anything like that. She just wears it as a symbol of identity. Exactly, exactly. But back into the, um, the world of the movie, the parents, they lived through the 58 crisis that's mentioned, and they lived through some big protests and a lot of things that made them think that what was happening in 75 wasn't going to be a big deal. Yeah, for a very long time, uh, they're just in denial, especially Tarek's father. He's just talking about how, like, oh, you know, it'll blow over. They'll just, like, shoot at each other for a little while, and then there will be peace, and we can all go back to normal. This has happened a bunch of times before. It's just Israel and the Palestinians uh, using Lebanon as a battleground, yada, yada, yada. And he's just very stubborn about denying this reality because ultimately he wants to believe that there is a future in Lebanon. That's really the point of his character. Like he feels himself to be very strongly Lebanese, very strongly Arab, and he doesn't want to go anywhere else. Yeah, he says, I don't want to belong to any other land or I I don't belong to any other land. Of course, a lot of Lebanese people did end up leaving during the war. I mean, it's definitely the case that a lot of people didn't think it would be a a long conflict, including, uh, you know, the people at the top, you know, international players and stuff. I, I think people weren't expecting this to to drag out certainly for 15 years i mean i I, but i I, you get get this with a lot of wars people people aren't uh aren't expecting that that they'll last so long i mean it was the case with the american civil war right like this is this is just gonna be uh one or two battles and then you know everyone will be happy and 
will resolve all the issues. No, no, because like with the Lebanese Civil War, there were all these underlying issues at play in uh, 19, uh, 1860s America that couldn't be resolved without uh, without this fight. And in Lebanon, you, I mean, the war could have the war could have gone uh, ended fairly fairly quickly. The uh, the PLO and the the Lebanese National Movement were much stronger than the Lebanese Front, the Christians, and uh, they were. They were on their way to victory until the uh, until the Syrian intervention, which happened in 1976. So, um, Syria at this time is under the control of Hafez al-Assad, um, and Assad was basically concerned about ensuring Syrian hegemony in in the region. He was not a Nasserist. He was opposed to the old UAR project, which which had died, and he was he was concerned with with Syria, not pan-Arabism, not you know everyone's happy together kind of thing. And so so what Hafez is worried about when the PLO and the Lebanese national movement start to win is that there's going to be like a strong independent Lebanon that uh, possibly takes a more uh, independent course from Syria, possibly takes a more, you know, pan-Arab, Arab nationalist course that isn't in line with, with uh, Syria's foreign policy. And uh, what Hafez w- wants is to be able to uh, bring these groups and bring the PLO sort of under his control and use them as as uh, his own instruments. So the uh, Syrians intervene in 1976. They're much stronger than any of the military factions in Lebanon and sort of steamroll over everyone. They come through the Becca Valley and uh, take control of a bunch of Lebanon and basically uh, establish like uh, uh, the boundaries of control between between the different factions they they you know set up the lines and say okay we've got this you've got that you know you're not allowed to move from here so essentially they they save the uh they save the christians from from being defeated and you end up with the christians controlling uh beirut and uh uh sort of the northern part of of mount lebanon the syrians controlling the becca valley and and the north uh and the Lebanese national movement and the PLO controlling parts of the south. But as as the war goes on, you know, uh, different factions get upset with the with the Syrians. The Christians get upset with the Syrians. Uh, they had initially thought like Hafez is the savior. Um, I think that I, I remember some anecdote about like the leaders basically viewed him as being like a new crusader, um, saving the Christians. But eventually, their interests start to clash. You get fights between the the Lebanese Front and the Syrian uh, Syrian army. Uh, the Battle of Zahle is a big one, uh, which is is commemorated today uh, by you know uh, right wing Christians as like a, a big defeat for them. Um, so that's you know one of the one of the things that a lot of them are still mad at the Syrians for. So basically, yeah, you can't trust Hafez. He's always just looking out for himself and. Syria's interests as he sees them. He wants Syria to be a regional power and Lebanon is his backyard. Yeah, essentially. He wants he wants to take it so that Israel doesn't take it as well. Oh, they'd never do that. There's no possibility of that. <laughs> yeah, those are the main rivals and uh of course Israel gets Israel had been involved really since the start of the war in a more minor aspect, but uh uh eventually does launch full-fledged invasion and uh, occupation of the country. And a siege of Beirut. I mean, it's a very brutal part of this war. Yeah, but, yeah, but that took until 1982 to happen. Right, the, this, the movie doesn't doesn't really touch on, on any of that. 
It's impossible to talk about the entire Civil War in one episode because it's just such a big thing. Or in one movie. But yeah, basically, all these international powers intervening helps draw the war out longer. I mean, people talk about the end of the war as 1990. Really, it went on until 2000 because that's when the Israelis finally withdraw from southern Lebanon. There was no civil war going on then, but there was still a war between Lebanese and Israelis that was a continuation from the old war. So I, you know, I think you can you can consider the the war to to go you know a full 25 years basically. I think that would that's a that makes perfect sense honestly yeah because the Lebanese territory does not you still have the one of the factions that invaded in 82 occupying Lebanese territory until they're kicked out in 2000. But um, most of this movie doesn't take place in the south, of course. It takes place in Beirut. You spend some time there. Does the movie capture the feel of the city? Like, does it look like Beirut? Does it, like, feel true to, true to form? Yeah, I mean, it's shot, it's shot like, 20, 20 years before I was there. So it, a lot of it looks different. But, I mean, there are, there are like, uh, there are definitely places I recognized. And, uh, you know, there's one, there's one scene they go past a mural that, I, that I've been by. Um, so, you know, you can, you can definitely recognize the... Uh, the real feel of it. Uh, Beirut is like Beirut's a small city. Like you don't realize that until you're there. You could walk from one end to the other in like a couple hours. I only realized how small Beirut is geographically last summer when uh, that warehouse exploded, and I saw like like the radius of that explosion in comparison to uh, to the city, and that's when it really dawned on me. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a lot of people packed in. I mean, the the city proper is yeah quite small, but you know, you get outside of the city boundaries, the, the the legal boundaries, and you know, there's really no distinction in terms of the the urban sprawl or anything like that. It just really keeps keeps going. So, I mean, a a main obviously the the title of the movie is West Beirut, referencing the the divide between the Christian and Muslim halves of the city, so, so called the Green Line. Yeah. So this was this was an actual thing. The Green Line running down the the middle of the city. You know, this was the the line of demarcation. It was called the Green Line because uh, because no one was going through there. The vegetation gets gets so overgrown. You have uh, yeah snipers on both sides. Um, and and like this, you can cross through there just fine today. But like it, it's along like a major road, so you can you can see very clearly. You know, you can walk down it and see clearly. You know, this is how the halves are divided. I mean, it's not it's in terms of religion or or affluence or anything it's not clearly divided or anything it's not as if people have stayed on those sides or anything there's been a lot of a lot of mixing but but broadly speaking i mean there's there's parts of uh east beirut like uh ashrafia and jamaize and marmachael that are you know noticeably wealthier these are where you know a lot of tourists will go and stay and you know you can cross over to in on the other on the other side on in the west you, you know it's it there are neighborhoods that are noticeably poorer people living in in sort of more dilapidated apartment buildings and stuff a bit more run down uh so you can you can definitely notice uh notice a difference in in living conditions from neighborhood to neighborhood that makes sense let's go back to the movie a bit yeah so again uh Tore is a very fun character he's just the class clown he's and at one point, there's this scene where he's uh, being made to read um, El Cid by his father. And he's just like, I don't want to do this anymore. There's a war. Why are you making me do this? And so his father is like, all right, uh, well, maybe you want to study some Arab history. And he's just joking around saying, Arab history? God damn the Arabs. Why is that? The Arabs are scum. You're Arab yourself. Me? No, I'm Lebanese. I'm Phoenician. Phoenician? Where'd you learn that word? In Arab history class. Uh, Liam, you want to maybe uh, tell the audience what Phoenicianism is? 
Well, I mean, it's it's sort of a like a kind of revisionist narrative history promoted by by some Christians in Lebanon that that says, you know, we are we're not Arab, we are Phoenician, which references the ancient civilization that lived in that area a long time ago. Um, and of course, I mean, this is, this is nonsense. You know, you go through thousands of years of the, of you know different people, different different migrations, different empires conquering you and whatever. And there's so much interbreeding or whatever. It's it's crazy to try to uh, to try to say that that you are exclusively you know something that far in the past and you're you're not Arab. I mean, there there's really no no genetic difference between uh between christians and, and muslims in lebanon although there were people in the civil war who tried to claim that like that was part of the official ideology of i think lebanese forces yeah i mean the, the Qatar has has promoted this and and you still get you still get promotion of that you know it's it's an attempt to distinguish themselves from the the muslim world around them that that they feel threatened by yeah, like, I've seen um, a clip from some daytime talk show in Lebanon where they just have this guy on who insists that they're not speaking Arabic, they're speaking Phoenician. And he's just, like, uh, giving proof by talking about, like, like the different words that they use that have uh, roots in Aramaic. So, like, uh, Zalameh, for example, like, like, because they say Zalameh, which is, like, uh, the Aramaic word for man, which has been adopted into uh, Le- Levantine uh, uh, but yeah, it's just a very jarring experience to hear this man speaking in Arabic. Granted, it's the like it's the Lebanese dialect of Arabic, but it's Arabic nonetheless. Like like you understand him completely, and he's just insisting that he's not speaking Arabic. Well, and and Phoenicianism isn't the only like uh, identitarian thing issue that comes up uh, in the twentieth century. You have Syrian nationalism, which is pioneered by Antun Sada, which. Uh, says, you know, everyone in the, 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 basically the Levant area, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, Lebanon, and Iraq, some of the surrounding areas, um, the, this is, uh, these people are Syrian, they're not Arab, they're, they're, uh, they're Syrian, a unique identity to that region, and he distinguishes them from the people on the Arabian Peninsula, who they see as, you know, inferior Bedouin, a uh, Bedouin gets used as, as an insult in, uh, in West Beirut, we see that. Um, yes, it does. So, so yeah, there's there's all sorts of attempts to uh, like distinguish themselves, which I mean is understandable. Obviously, there are cultural differences, but you know when it gets down to to weird racial stuff, then it's then it's a bit more questionable. Yeah, as you said, it's certainly not the only instance of this kind of thing in the 20th century. You have, I mean, Zionism itself. Uh, you have the Canaanists within the Zionist movement. You have. The SSNP, as you mentioned, who uh, still believe some of this stuff. Um, in Egypt, you had the Pharaonists who were trying to like, connect to the ancient Egypt- Egyptian identity rather than uh, the Arab identity, which was of a very strong ideology in Egypt prior to uh, Nasser coming to power and, and really bringing Arab nationalism to the fore. Yeah, and then in Iraq, like Saddam Hussein, until like until the 90s even, was talking about this uh, Mesopotamianism, about how the Iraqi people are are the Akkadians of, of yore, that this is the site of the world's first civilizations. Well, in, in Iraq, it predated Saddam as well. Like, Abdul Karim Qasim, who was the, the socialist, socialist leader before uh, the Ba'athists came to power in Iraq. He's the one who got cooed. Yeah, his project was, was uh, I mean, he, cre- he created a flag for Iraq that, that you know, used uh, sort of yeah Mesopotamian imagery and tried to include uh, you know Arabs, Kurds, and uh, Assyrians as all part of this uh, this one nation. So he wasn't an Arab nationalist and and got into a lot of conflict with them. And he tried to promote this you know separate Iraqi identity that was you know more inclusive of people of 
other ethnic groups inside the country. I think there's another element to the whole Phoenicianism, Phoenicianism thing and the attempt to distance themselves from other Arabs in the Arab world, which is something that the father hits on in the movie at one point. He says that the world's abandoned us, but he also mentions that the Arabs have abandoned us. And there is kind of a sense of, well, what have they done for us lately? I, I, ju- I wondered like how how autobiographical um, Duery is making these parts of the film because it, it, it did strike me as sort of like, so this, this kid goes to a, a French school, a pr- presumably Christian school. And so it, it struck me as a little bit weird that he would be, he would be talking about Phoenicianism. So I wonder if, if like, you know, this was something the director personally experienced. That was the, I, you know, that was the mindset that he was exposed to that, that we're not Arab, whatever, because you know, a lot of, a lot of Muslims did very strongly identify with, with Arab identity. Um, so yeah, maybe this is maybe this is him being a, a more sheltered middle class kid or something like that. That he's not. Uh... Well, no, in the movie he's very clearly joking. He's just trying to rile his father up. You think? I I didn't get that read, but I I don't know. I think he was jo- like kind of half joking. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know. Maybe I'd have to watch it again. But um, I mean, I I would just say like one thing that that really strikes me about about Tarek is how sheltered he is. How how sort of unaware he is of the events. I mean. To go back to the uh, the Kamal Jumblat thing, like they 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 enter this uh, parade, protest, whatever, and they somehow don't know who Kamal Jumblat is, even though he's like you know he's one of the most famous people in the country. He is the main leader of the militia group representing their their sect, and it's not as if it's a like you can see other young people in the crowd too. So it's like what are, <laughs> what are these guys doing that they don't know who that is? Like it's it's sort of interesting what it's trying to tell us there about about his uh non-awareness of the political events going on around him yeah he's still he's still a child and he's still very much acting like a child and his innocence is still i watched the movie again with my girlfriend and uh, they said the fact that innocence persists in this war the kids kind of keep being innocent at least on some level yeah but just to push back a little bit on that i get the sense that Tarek himself is quite politically aware uh, so, so the movie begins with, uh, the children of the school, uh, in the schoolyard as they're being rounded up to sing the Marseillaise, like, like before classes start. And, and he basically, uh, disrupts this by getting a loudspeaker and singing, uh, the national anthem of Lebanon instead to, uh, disrupt this, which, uh, gets him, uh, chastised by his teacher. And he's just making fun of like the French language. Like he's purposely, uh, misspelling what the teacher is telling him to write on the board. At one point, she's asking him if he's making fun of France. And he's just like, no, 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 no. Yes. No, no. Wait, no, no, maybe. He spells monsieur as M-E-E-S-E-U-X. He spells monsieur as meilleur, like he says my eyes. But, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's definitely... I think he's definitely got opinions about about that stuff, but you know he he still is not is not conscious about you know everything surrounding the war that's that's going on around him. Yeah, he's aware that he doesn't like the French, but he doesn't really know where he stands within Lebanese society itself. But but then you know we we see him you know there's uh, there's the militia man in his neighborhood that he that he has a lot of respect for who who later turns out to be a thug. Yeah, Papa Snake, who starts out as kind of harmless-ish, like a little bit eccentric weirdo, and by the end of it, he's bayonetting bags of grain so that no one else can get them. Right, right. So we see he thinks, you know, oh, that guy's macho, he's cool, he's got a bazooka, you know. He's he's totally unaware about, you know, 
the the leaders of of the faction. You know, maybe you know he knows Arafat and Jamail or whatever. But um, you know, he doesn't really know what's he doesn't really know what's going on. And yeah, it's like you said, sort of this this innocence, this this uh, sheltered middle class life that he had starts to you know crumble down around him as as the war goes on. The war kind of starts encroaching on his little world. Yeah, uh, until by the end of the movie, it becomes very clear to him what a serious situation it is. Just uh, going back, um, I would like to read the speech that the teacher gives after she kicks Toddy out of the French class, because I feel like it's a good exposition of the traditional French interpretation of Lebanon, which in some ways continues to persist and which really colored the choice of the Maronites to identify themselves as Phoenicians rather than Arabs. Some Maronites, to be fair, to be clear. So she says, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the French high school of Beirut is the embodiment of the French mission. Let us not forget that France created your country, created your borders, and taught you peace. We created your civilization and your constitution. Let it be known that education, especially French education, is the only way out of your primitive customs. Yeah, it's it's pretty just like dripping with racism, racism and contempt, and that is very much what the what they think. Yeah, but yeah, this was the traditional high-minded French uh, mindset that basically saw themselves as the saviors of Lebanon because. Uh, they basically took a very active role in Lebanon itself in the aftermath of the war that happened in Mount Lebanon in the 1850s and the 1860s when uh, the Druze and and the Maronites began to kill each other. It was sort of like a Christian peasant revolt against Druze feudal lords culminated in a massacre, basically. This was when it was still under uh, Ottoman uh, authority, to be clear. Yeah, so this this was an this was a, a conflict that that sprawled from from Mount Lebanon into modern day Syria, and uh, yeah, it was it's sort of like one of the early uh, sectarian conflicts, I guess. Yeah, and this culminated in the creation of the Mutasarifia of Mount Lebanon, which was sort of this autonomous zone where. France had an inordinate amount of influence that they basically forced the Ottoman uh, government to hand over to them under the pretext of their mission of protecting the Catholic Christians of, of the Ottoman Empire. It, it's basically like Sidon to like Tripoli, or a little below Tripoli, actually. Yeah, and what became Lebanon later was actually called Greater Lebanon. Greater Lebanon includes like uh, the Bekaa Valley, uh, the south, uh, a little bit more of the far north. One thing I actually I wanted to note, Christ, I can't remember the guy's name. Lebanese National Movement includes uh, one of the the Christian peasant leaders of the uprising against the the feudal lords in their imagery. Like they use his, his image on posters and stuff. So it's interesting. You get like this. You get like nominally Muslim movement using a Christian leader as a. Uh... Well, they're not nominally Muslim. That's the thing. They're nominally non-sectarian. It's just that the majority of their supporters are Muslim because of the way that Lebanese society was structured. Right. Right. But yeah, no, I, I just I mean to say this movement that's identified with with Muslims, you know, they use a, they use a Christian leader because, you know, they see him as a, as a revolutionary, as, as someone uh, standing up against injustice. Yeah, it's, it's important to remember that. Yeah, like this stuff is not all just purely like these people are all still part of one country. Tanyas Shaheen, the name of the guy. Sorry. Basically, in the movie, what happens is that uh, uh, Tori and Amr are, are marching in this uh, procession. 
to commemorate uh, Kamal Jumblat, who was the leader of the Progressive Socialist Party. Yeah, the Progressive Socialist Party, which was Druze aligned and a big part of the Lebanese national movement. And at a certain point, uh, this march is interrupted by a guy throwing a Molotov cocktail. Uh, this isn't said, but I was under the impression that the guy doing that would have been Syrian aligned. I, I don't think that was a real event. I don't know. I don't know what they're trying to do with that thing. Um, the Syrians were probably the people that killed uh, Kamal Jumblat. Uh, Hafez got got frustrated with him after a while. You know, he was trying to trying to maintain the the independence of the leftist movement from the Syrian government, and so in '77 he was assassinated by some gunmen that came up on his car and killed him and his driver and bodyguard. The car that they were that the assassins were in had. Uh, Iraqi plates, I think, which doesn't really mm. make any sense. And so people think that probably they were, it was like a lazy attempt to frame the Iraqis for it. You know, most, most people agree that it was uh, probably the, probably the Syrians that did it because, uh, you know, they wanted to, to knock off this, this upstart. And it worked for them because when Kamal's son, Walid Jumblat, takes over the party, he becomes much more uh, uh, easy to work with for the Syrians. And, uh, sort of drops the uh, the ideological aspect of the PSP and turns it into more of a just Drew's interests focused party. But as for as for this like uh, attack on the on the procession, yeah, I've I've no idea what what that was about or or what they're trying to indicate there. I mean, maybe it's just supposed to be a plot device. I don't know. Either way, it gets us to Umwali's place. Yeah. So Tare he ducks into the backseat of this taxi after this procession is attacked and the driver is driving to this place he has no idea where he's going but at a certain point he realizes that he had crossed into the eastern half of the city and lo and behold he's suddenly in a brothel with a bunch of prostitutes uh just dancing around him and he's like a 15 year old boy so he can't really contain his joy all that well and he meets the infamous umwalid the madam the owner of the brothel the and a figure of some note across the city. She claims that her brothel is the only one like it in the city, which I highly doubt, and in any city of that size, and claims that in the brothel there is no East or West Beirut, and the war doesn't really matter here. Yeah, and I've seen references made to the fact that, that she's based on a real personality, but I, I wasn't able to figure out who the real person was. Those people don't always get recorded in respectable histories. The taxi has a bra hanging on its roof, so the sniper's no, not to shoot because there's an agreement that people can come to the brothel at will without getting shot. Presumably the soldiers are going themselves. Well, no, actually that's confirmed uh, later on. Yeah. And um, this is kind of a bit of an escape for Tarek. It's a place where he can kind of pretend that, you know, things are normal again and that he's having a fun teenage boy experience, etc. His plan is to uh, end the war by having Arafat and uh, Jamael and everyone else just meet in the brothel and just... You know, they'll, it, it'll all be okay. They'll have something that unites them. Right at this point, um, Amun Walid, she's very angry because uh, the night before, uh, a fight, an actual fight had broken out in the brothel because it turned out that one of the girls was sleeping with both uh, Christians and Muslims, and she's just flabbergasted. Yeah, she's very dismayed at this and says she's finished, that Beirut is finished, that it's everything's fucked, basically. Liam, what was your take on, on, uh, on this I don't know. I didn't really know what to make of it. Um, it's interesting that, you know, it's sort of seen as the uh, kind of ne- the neutral ground or whatever, you know, soldiers from, from both camps can, 
can go there to get their rocks off. I don't. I don't know. I. I. It's hard to tell for me, at least, like why the film places such a such a big emphasis on this because it's sort of it's sort of after this that it's after this that Tarek like starts to mature, I guess, and and become more aware of the uh, the realities of the war. I guess. Yeah, it, this is what it sets in really for him. It's kind of a it's a it's the last place that he can go to escape everything it seems like. Because his father is clearly receding into a lot of despair. The mother is clearly very desperate as well. Her job appears to be gone. The courthouse is closed. It doesn't really seem to be much waiting for them. The father, you hear him and the mother discussing, you know, they call them deluxe refugees and uh, terms that I will not repeat. Essentially what he's saying is, look, I, I don't want to sell falafel in New York or drive a cab in Paris. I, there's no point in leaving. Then the mother who wants to leave uh, in much of the movie eventually acquiesces because they realize that there really is nowhere else for them. And the reality of what this is has kind of set in. We're presumably like, if the timeline is the same as, you know, the real world, and this is probably 77 after Jumblatt's assassination. So it's taken a while for this to really set in. Like, at the start, he says that, oh, it'll be just like 58. The father, I mean, this will be just like 1958. They'll, you know, some troops will come in, it'll all be sorted out. And that's not what happened at all. It kind of just, life goes on, even as the war gets worse, and, you know, the conditions deteriorate rapidly. People still go to work and, you know, walk around the city and do things and try to live their lives. Yeah, life finds a way. Which is something we see in Lebanon today as the situation there deteriorates, well, kind of different and kind of similarish ways. The economic crisis today is worse than any than the economy was during the war. Which is incredible. Yeah, like I've seen people make reference to the fact that they were living better during the Civil War because they could still import stuff. Their money was still worth something. But now, like, the financial system is just totally wrecked. Which is what, like, was one of the big attractions of Lebanon, was the banking system of the country. And even that's disintegrated at this point. Yeah, from what I understand, what had happened was that uh, Lebanon had managed to see a lot of GDP growth on paper because their central bank mandated that interest rates... Uh, be set very high so that people to hold their money in Lebanese banks gets crazy rates. Like at one point it was like 10% a year, which created a lot of incentives for people outside of Lebanon itself to bring their money over to to Lebanon. And a lot of Syrians in particular, for example, a lot of other people in the region. Like at a certain point, the Lebanese central bank had to start liquidating its dollar reserves to like keep up with the interest payments. And so they just totally ran out of dollars, out of euros, out of all that stuff. And they just kept kicking the can down the road until, yeah, until there was no road left. The lira value has been fluctuating. I mean, it, it got really bad after recently Saad Hariri said uh, uh, that he's stepping down. He's not trying to form a government. I think it rebounded a bit. So it's somewhere between uh, 15 and 20,000 lira to the dollar, which is like... 10 times what it was um like or a tenth of the value that it that it was uh prior to this crisis yeah no it's it's been it's been massive inflation lebanon's problem is you know this system of this uh, rentier economy basically that sustained it for so long uh now when this crisis comes has left it without any productive sectors without anything to rely on so you know when you need to import everything and your currency is totally devalued. That's not good. So, really, it's 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 the result of these these policies set up by politicians, you know, 
over the decades since the country was started, uh, exacerbated by the anti-worker, anti-industry policies of Rafiq Hariri in the 1990s. And yeah, here we are today. That's all, that's all led to total ruin. You know, it's the fucking, it's the neoliberal libertarian dream, Lebanon. I mean, everything's privatized. Yeah. This was what they, they wanted. This is what libertarians want, basically, is the Lebanese system. All this free commerce, all this opportunity for, you know, banking and stuff and, uh, you know. And the state not existing for all intents and purposes. Everything is privatized. Everything is up for grabs. It's pretty hellish in a lot of ways. Um, you can view Lebanese political and economic history in a lot of ways as just kicking the can down the road constantly. The, the agreement to end the civil war, essentially, just kicked the can down the road. Oh, well, the, the agreement to end the civil war was supposed to end the, the sectarian system. I mean, the Taif yeah. Accord said, we've got to, you know, put an end to this. But yeah, it's just kicking the can down the road more. Yeah, they, they didn't actually lay out any like concrete way to do that. Yeah, so uh, uh, thank you for coming on, Liam, to talk to us about West Beirut and the Lebanese Civil War more generally. I, I'm Russian Sam, and... I'm Paul Sam. I'm Liam. You can follow Liam at uh, HezBolsonaro on Twitter. And, and, and is there anything else you would like to plug, Liam? Subscribe to my Substack. It's in my Twitter bio, right about international politics, whether it's Lebanon or Latin America or wherever. So yeah, if you're if you're into that kind of thing, consider giving it a try. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks guys. All right, take care.